This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you are in here, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. In the rack, there's a black hardback-looking book, and that is a Bible. Philippians is in the New Testament. I'd invite you to join me there. Uh, While you're turning there, let me tell you what was supposed to happen this morning. Uh, I was not supposed to be here. I was supposed to uh, be in the building, but not up front. Our brother Sai was going to preach the word to us this morning, and then uh, earlier this week, he began feeling unwell. Uh, There was talk, possibly, of the need for uh, an emergency surgery. (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, It it seems like that's not going to be necessary, but we thought it best that he pull out of that. And so here's what I thought I'd do. I was like, you know what? Uh, I went through a few other people that were unavailable to come and and to preach this morning. I thought, I'm going to be here. I will do this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do something that I haven't done in my, I've been senior pastor here at Our Savior for a dozen years. And I thought, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'll just take something I've already preached, and I'm just going to re-preach it. And so that was a great plan of mine. And then I started working through it, and I was like, this is terrible. I don't even like this sermon. And so uh, what I wanted to do, next week I'm going to preach Philippians 4. And I, and I wanted to, when I originally laid out this sermon series, it was four weeks, I really wanted it to be a fifth week because I wanted to actually do this, to set up Philippians 4, which says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You really need to know where Paul's coming out of in Philippians 3 to read that well. And I just wouldn't have had time to do it next week. And so I really wanted to do Philippians 3 especially the first half of that. And there just didn't seem to be time. Uh, But in the providence of God, uh, it it worked out this way. So we're going to do the first half of Philippians 3 that's going to set us up for next week. And uh, while I would, of course, never uh, want Cy to suffer or I wanted to hear what he had to say from uh, Psalm 126, uh, this will, I think, be okay. But I I dusted off this old thing. And and the bottom line is it's like I, I was working through it. It's like, I don't even like this. And so this is like... This is, here's what it is. It's like if you buy a house and just completely gut the house. Maybe the roof's the same, the walls are the same. It functions completely differently. It's a completely different sermon. I just didn't like what I had to say. I, I by God's grace, think I like this much better. But here's how I want to structure today. Uh, we're going to read Philippians 3, and I just want to ask a single question about joy. And then I, I want to try to see if Philippians 3 isn't just the best place in the Bible for helping us to, to see the, the difference between the foundation of joy when our joy's in Christ and kind of the difference between the cheap imitation substitutes that, that putting our joy or hoping for our joy in anything else would try to be for us. So I'm just going to ask one question, and then we're going to see if Philippians 3, which I think it does, lays out just the distinctiveness of answering that question, one in Christ, and then to in, in, in anything else. And so if you've got your Bible open, let's go to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9 of Philippians 3. Really like you to follow along in your own Bible so you can get the most out of this. So he says, Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We'll stop there. So this series that we've been working through, three weeks previous to this, today, and then next week, is about Christian joy. And Paul starts here by saying, rejoice in the Lord. That's why I wanted to start here. That's why I wanted to do this. And then he says, basically what he says is, Christ has become everything to to me, to him, to the point that, and this is just me speaking for him, he's saying that I would gladly, without hesitation, give up everything just to know him a little bit better. So here's the, I told you I was going to ask one question and just see if Philippians 3 isn't the best place to answer it. Here's the question I want to ask. If Paul can say, I've had everything else and Christ is better. I've had all kinds of other things and I would give them all up quickly. I wouldn't hesitate to do it just to know a little bit more of Christ if that was his joy, if Christ was his all, how come we so rarely have that same kind of joy in Jesus ourselves? That's the question that I want to ask. That's just the one question that I want to ask. Why is it so rare for us to take that kind of approach to Jesus? Why don't we rejoice in him that way? I think it's an honest question. Why don't we have the kind of joy in knowing Jesus that says, I would give up everything in order to gain him? And I think these these verses, what they do is they they lay out a vision for what that kind of joy looks like, and then they, they show us how to start. And folks, if we can just get that, if we can just see a vision for that, and even learn what the first step is. I believe if we, we do that by the time we, we leave in just a few minutes this morning, uh, God will have done a great work in us. So that, that's my hope, is just to ask, why isn't Christ often to us that way? And so to, to look into that, here's what you need to know about Paul. 
Uh, Paul had no illusion. <coughs> he has no illusion that his life is his own. His life was Christ's, and he loved that. That's what he wanted. Christ, again, was everything to him. And, and what that did is it gave Paul one holy, all-consuming passion. Paul's whole life was given to know Christ and to make him known to others. And so if you were to go back, we've just kind of dropped into the very middle of Philippians, but if you were to go back and read from the beginning of this letter, that's what it's been about so far. And so where we're picking this up, we just get this sense, but you have to read the whole thing to get, to get the full context of how deep this yearning is for Paul to know Christ. But the good news is that when you read Philippians, what you get is this sense that Paul is not this elevated figure who none of us could possibly relate to. And Paul, in fact, Paul is regularly saying, I am no better than anybody and mostly far worse than you are. Yet, Christ has permeated every bit of his life to this point that he says, all I want to do is know him. All I want is just a little bit more of him. I'll give up everything for that. And what Philippians is about is you too can, can live like that. You too can have that. You can have more of Christ. It's not inaccessible to you. He is not far from you. He's near and so that's what, what this is about. And so Paul writes here, he starts this chapter by writing, finally, my brothers, I, I love that. He, if you look at Philippians, it's four chapters. We're at the beginning of chapter three. We've just come out of chapter two. And he writes, finally, he's only halfway through the letter. That's an old preacher's trick. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And, and this is why I'm drawn to this. This is, this is why I wanted to do this. If you want to know what joy in the Lord is, just read this letter. In fact, my first draft of the joy series was just four sermons from Philippians because the whole book's about joy. So for Paul, not only in his life, but in this letter, joy and rejoicing is like a refrain. Not when he doesn't know what else to say, but because it comes back to joy. It's all about joy. His life is meant to be a rejoicing in Christ. So over and over and over, he's saying, remember, have, put, find your joy in Christ. And he'll just come back to that and back to that and back to that. And I would say the same thing to us this morning. If you want fullness of life, it will only come when the refrain of your life is Christ. Join him, rejoicing in him. And Paul does that because for him rejoicing is the main thing. It's the way to true life. And he, and he doesn't mean that circumstantially. Don't rejoice circumstantially. Philippians is written from jail. Four offenses. He's there, confined for offenses he did not, he's not guilty of. And at this point, Paul does not know his fate. So again, he lives for the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and he made his best efforts to continue that work while he's in prison. But there is an element of him being limited here. So while he sits in jail, he's in Rome. 
what he had hoped to be doing at this point was to have gone on from Rome to Spain to preach the gospel there. Scholars are fairly split on whether or not Paul went there, whether or not he ever made it. So there's some who think that he was able to go after he was released. They think he was released for a time, went to Spain, preached the gospel there, came back and was eventually executed in Rome. And then there are others who think that he never left Rome after this point. But already, that's almost, it's not irrelevant, but it, it really doesn't change what we're reading here because already by this point, Paul has been regularly persecuted for his faith in Christ. For the sake of the gospel, he's been ostracized, slandered, abandoned, beaten, all because he loves Christ and he wants other people to love Christ and know Christ too. So he does not write, rejoice in the Lord as somebody who everything has gone well for. Nothing has gone as planned for him. Paul is a man who has suffered, yet he has great joy. So now we're in the flow of this letter, and at the beginning of chapter 3, he's coming back to some of the main reasons for his writing to the Philippians. So first he writes for their joy. Next he says, your joy is linked to your discernment. So if you look, starting in verse 2, he's basically saying, I'll read it in just a minute, but he's saying, look out for false teachers in anything that would distract you from knowing and believing and living in the truth of the gospel. And, and we would say that's simple enough, right? Just look out for anything that's going to distract you from the gospel. But these go together. How will you have real joy in Christ if you don't know the, the marvelous light of the gospel? What Paul knows from his experience, and what you've probably found in, in yours, is that some of the greatest threats to our joy are coupled and come along with the same things that would threaten our faith in Jesus. And now, what he is going to say is you'll be able to see some of them but others of them will be unseen unless you're paying close attention. So there will be in your life, in my life, there will be tragedies and hardships and there will be sufferings. And they will threaten to steal our joy in Christ and, and take us away from him if we let them. But also, those things we're gonna see, you're gonna see those things, you're gonna know them. What Paul is here saying now is there will be, in fact, I would say it this way, most of the things in your life <coughs> that will threaten your faith and threaten to take you away from joy, from putting your joy in Jesus will not be full frontal assaults. They will not be the big things. They're going to be subtle things that kind of try to slip in disguised so they will go unnoticed. You will think they're not big deals. You will think it's just one thing. It's just one time. It's only this one seed of doubt. This only this one seed of anger. This only one seed of sin. But it will be planted in you and it will grow from the inside. And that's what Paul is here saying. And here's, here's how that works. 
most, again, of what we're confronted with are not going to be the big things. Most of what threatens our faith is when we're whispered little lies that just seem close enough to the truth to make them seem okay and, and even good. And this has been the way it has, throughout the history of humanity, this is how Satan has worked against people. This is how the forces of evil and the prince of the power of the air has worked against people. It started all the way back in the garden for Adam and Eve with the fruit. It's what Satan tried to do when Jesus was tempted after fasting for 40 days. And it's what he's still trying to do to you and me today if we're in Christ. And so Philippians 3, 2 says it like this. It says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who would mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what Paul is doing is he's calling out a group of false teachers called Judaizers. And what they would do is they would distort the gospel through legalism. There were people who were still, these were people still caught under the law and still living according to its statutes. But what they were trying to do is take Jesus as well and maybe squeeze a little bit of him into the law. And so that what they would come and they would do is they would say obedience to the law remains necessary. But now that Jesus has come, He's somebody that needs to be obeyed too. But the subtle difference, because if I said, should we obey Christ? I hope that the entirety of this room would say, absolutely, yes, we should obey Christ. The subtlety, remember, these aren't full frontal assaults. These are seeds that grow with inside of us. The difference is when you come and you say, we must obey the law and we must obey Christ. And if Christ is not obeyed and the law isn't obeyed, then you are not in the, then you are not in the grace of God or you are not in the blessing of God. What you've done is you've taken God, you've taken his son, Jesus, and made him not somebody who's full of grace and mercy, but instead you've made him yet another burden and something to fear failure at. You've essentially just stacked something on top of the law, not worshipped a king and a savior who came to fulfill it where you could not. The problem was these people just couldn't believe the beautiful, the beautiful simplicity of the gospel. And it deprived them of any hope of life and, and true joy. And what's even worse than that of them being deprived of that is they went around attempting to get others to join them in their misery. So probably my single greatest hope for our church is that we would never get tired of the gospel. We never tire of hearing the good news of Jesus. In fact, when we feel like, like we've heard it, when we feel like maybe it's time to move on to something else, when we, when we no longer marvel at the gospel, folks, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble when we feel like it's time for something else besides the gospel. The gospel of Jesus gives life and is the root of, of joy in, in this life, and, and it carries us all the way through to the eternal blessedness of the next life. And the Christian gospel has the audacity to tell us 
that this world is not our final home. And at first, that can be hard for people to hear, but when you do, it will produce in you a joy that nothing in this life can replicate. It can be hard to hear that we shouldn't take our joy and find our peace in things of this world because it's so counterintuitive to the way that we're conditioned to think. But when your heart's made alive and and when your mind is renewed, you see the gospel for everything that it fully and finally is. And, and And then things make sense to you when you hear it. The gospel can deliver to you a true joy because there's nothing else in the world like it. So again, it it has the audacity to tell you that the real problem in the world is not out there. The real problem with the world, the thing that actually prevents you from joy and peace and happiness is you. It's me. It's not our circumstances. It's not something that other people have done to us. It's us. And so outside of the gospel, we look at problems, we look at hardships, and in our conclusion is, you know what? This is hard, and I deserve better. This has befallen me, and it shouldn't. I am worth more. But through the gospel, we're shown that we actually deserve far less, far worse. It's God in his grace that gives us infinitely better. And when we see that, we're able to turn from what what Jesus called a a wide path of enmity with God and love for the world, and we we can get on a narrow path where we're no longer clinging to the world and we have an ever-increasing love for God. But the, the way to this is not walked by lots and lots of people because it's so counterintuitive to the way that the world works. And so let us never tire of the gospel. And to do that, we have to take what we have inverted, and it has to be reverted. God has to revert it back to a place where he is seen as ultimately glorious and life in him is known as the prize. Everything in our world, including us, is meant to bring glory to God. And that's a hard place to even begin because he is so far beyond our comprehension. Even when we, we, even when we try to kind of gaze, the Bible, the Psalms calls it gazing upon his beauty. The Bible says even when we try to do that, it's, it's like looking in a dirty, it's like looking through a dirty window where all we're going to see, a dirty mirror really, where all we're going to see is a dim reflection of the actual thing. So even though we were meant to bring God glory, uh, we made a different choice. So in the Garden of Eden, a place where man and a woman were made in the image of God and meant to, to walk with him, to actually know him, to see him, and to talk with him the way we talk with one another. The man and the woman made a choice to deny God's provision, to believe a lie, And again, this wasn't a lie. This wasn't an all-out assault on the truth. It was just subtle enough. The instruction from God was don't eat from that tree. If you do, you'll eventually die. The lie was God's trying to withhold something from you. 
He's not out for your good. He's out to hold you down. He knows if you eat from that tree, you'll actually become better than you are now. That's, that was the lie. And so it was, it was a lie of God's withholding something from us. And so the man and the woman chose to deny that, to believe something, and by their choice, by their rebellion toward God, their denial of his goodness, the perfection that God created the world with was shattered, and the way the world was supposed to be was, at that point, seemingly irreparably harmed. So instead of the world becoming a place where God and people dwell together, it's filled with, not entirely, but the effects of sin are everywhere. The world is a fallen and broken place, and we see evidences of that in ourselves. We see evidence of that in the world every day. And before, really quick, before you go getting upset at that man and that woman and saying, man, you guys really blew it for us. Kind of, if I was there, we would have made the right choice. Let's just know this. If you and I were there, we would have made that choice too. We would have made the exact same choice. And if you don't think I'm right, just think of all the times that you knew better, but you became angry. I don't know anybody who thinks like, it's just good for me to get angry. Yet we sometimes still get angry. Think of all the times you've been jealous. Think of all the times that you've withheld forgiveness. You know better, but you still do it anyway. Think of all the times that you uh, look upon people, and really what it is is with judgment, just thinking, I would have made a better choice. I would have made a different choice. But sometimes we don't. And so we decide against generosity. We decide against the good thing. I could just go on and on and on with it, but the truth of the matter is this. If we were there, we would have made exactly the same choice too. Now the good news of the gospel is that in the midst of that choice, God is never done with us and is hopeless and irreparable as the damage seems to be. God has not said he's done with this place or he's not done with us. And so he sends his son Jesus to atone for sin. Jesus came to earth as both God and man, and therefore he could do for us and give to us the two things that we could never do for ourselves. He could live a life without sin, never sinned against God, and he could die a death that he didn't deserve. So he could live the life that we could live, never live, and he could die death in our place. And because of those two things, in an act of unparalleled power, God raised Jesus from the dead, and he now sits in heaven reigning as king over the universe, and he's waiting to return to restore all things to the way they're ultimately supposed to be. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the hope of the gospel. Let's never get tired of hearing it. Every time we hear it, let's marvel at it. But I've left out one key component. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus can be counted to a person as theirs and Paul says, I don't have a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness of Christ. You can have this righteousness before God, not just because Jesus did these things, but when you place your faith in Jesus. That's the last component of the gospel. It has to be faith. You have to believe in your heart that Christ died and was raised again for you. You have to repent of your sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You have to know that you're never going to make your relationship with God right on your own. So you have to trust in Christ's work on your behalf. 
That's what it means to come to Jesus. There's nothing we need to do. There's no amount of penance that we need to pay. There's no no amount of good works that you can do. Any other system that humans have invented will never get us there. And sometimes that can even frustrate people. It frustrated the Judaizers that the gospel is that simple. And this is what happens to the good news of the gospel in in every era of human history, even during Jesus' earthly life. People have been uncomfortable with that level of simplicity, that level of commitment. And so there's always people who want to try to pile things on top of it. They've always wanted to put parameters around it or put it in some kind of a box. So this is what Paul is writing about here in Philippians 3. Anytime you try to add anything to the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. It's Jesus plus nothing all the time. And unless you get that, you're never going to have true joy. You have to know that God gives you himself. And outside of that, there is nothing great like it. So just like people do today, this still happens. Some people have infiltrated the Philippian community and are trying to convince people within the church to add something to the message, to that message. What they were trying to do is they were trying to meld Jewish customs. We do this different ways. But they were trying to meld Jewish customs and some misunderstandings of this newly formed Christianity and thinking that they were helping people. What they were really doing is leading people astray. <coughs> and the, and the, just the heresy was as simple as they thought that something else was necessary, that the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ was not enough and there was more work required. And so what you see happening in Philippi is the same thing that's subtle in our, it could be in our church, it could be in our own heart. This isn't a social rebellion that's happening. This isn't some sort of an atheism rally. These are subtle lies that could seem, unless somebody is discerning close enough to be mistaken for the truth. Well, don't you want to obey Jesus? Well, isn't it good to work for the righteousness that God has laid out for his people. Of course, the answers to those questions are yes. It's the motivation to the why. It's the what are we trying to do through our obedience that will lead us astray. And Paul knows the dangers of this because that's where he goes next. Then he says, I've lived it. I have been the danger to this. It used to consume him. And she goes on to say, with everything that he's done, nothing was earning him to the righteousness of Christ. So look at what he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence, I have more. And so he says he was circumcised on the eighth day, which is according to the exact letter of the law. He's of the people of Israel, so he's from the right nation, of the tribe of Benjamin, so he's from the right family. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's the best of the best. There's nobody higher than me. As to the the law of Pharisee, which means he held it as strictly as anybody could hold it. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, I was zealous for this. This was consuming. This was my whole life. And then I, I love this line. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
Now, I don't think he was, but I think he was probably close enough that he thinks he could write this. Here's how you, you translate this in modern day language. You know, I've been in church every Sunday of my life. Always been in Sunday school. I've completed all the Iwana handbooks. I don't say bad words. I've, in fact, what Paul would be able to say is, I've memorized most of the Bible. Because I've memorized the New Testament. So I was an elder, I was a deacon, I was a pastor, I was whatever. Basically, Paul's saying, as close as a person can be, I was perfect. This kind of rigid legalism is probably unheard of among us. But look at what he says now that he knows Christ. Now that he's experienced Christ. Now that he sees the world in a way that only one who has had their mind transformed by Christ can. But whatever gain I had. By the way here, uh, good things can come from that in, in one sense. But Paul says, whatever gain I had. So he had something good from that. And I would argue in in Paul's specific case, even God used this for his providence because it allowed him, Paul knew scripture and Paul writes much of the New Testament. He knew the scriptures well enough to argue and to refute and to, to write in a way that has shaped our faith today. I might, I might even say he had such a unique understanding of how to understand the gospel simply because of the way that God had previously allowed him to know the trappings of legalism. I mean, just among other things. But now he says, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. His sake, I've counted all things, count them rubbish. Uh, that word rubbish, I mean, much better. I mean, it, it, means, the word, it means the word excrement. That's what it means in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness in my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So here's what Paul is straining with everything he has to communicate. If you want true hope, if you want to know real joy, you've got to put everything else behind you and make your goal Jesus and nothing else. Listen All the other stuff, while not sinful, might be fine. But if in the end you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. So if you spend your life trying to appear a certain way to people or trying to clean yourself up on the outside so you you look like you've got it all together, but on the inside you're, you're struggling and you're empty, you don't actually have Jesus. If that's you, you've lost You've lost, he's saying, full joy only comes when Christ is everything to you, when Christ is your all. So is Christ your all? If you say, what what does that even mean? I'm always trying to drive us toward practicality in in, in daily Christian living. Uh, One, because I know that's what we need, but, but two, because that's what we all need is more ways to make Christ are all. So in one sense, there is just the grandeur of seeing this and praising God for that. But we also have to constantly ask, how? How are we going to do this? How is Christ going to be all to us? Even the whens. When we are confronted with difficulty and struggle, when 
things are going well, how will Christ be all to us? How will we keep this ever present in our minds? And so um, I asked the one question, I I guess I'm going to cheat. I'm going to ask you just a couple of more questions. If you want to consider everything else rubbish and gain Christ, here's my two questions. Number one, what stimulates that in you? Another way I would ask that is, as it relates to joy, is, is what brings you joy? And it has to start and stay in Christ, but just what will help you? How's it spurred on? And so I would just ask you to find what are those things in your life that stimulate joy in Christ for you? That just make you worship. Find them and do them regularly. Your things might not be my things. I mean, for one, um, I worship, I, I take joy in God when I go outside. It's easy on a day like today, right? Uh, but I just love going outside. There's something about hot sunshine on my skin that just makes me thankful to God. Just thank you, Jesus, for this. My joy, my hope is in you. Like winter's tough for me. We get a lot of winter here. Um, another thing that just makes me love Christ more is, is study. Uh, some of you don't like to study. You don't like to read. Um, you don't love books. For me, uh, reading and digging into the word of God, into historic theology, um, is, is life-giving. Some of you are just like, you know, that just it bores me. I fall asleep. I love it. I've got shelves filled with books, and many of them are by guys who have been dead for a long, long time. And I just, I love to, they're friends to me. I just love to sit with them and read them, and it causes joy in Christ. What are those things for you? That's part of the how. What are those things for you? Here's my second question. What is it that robs you of your joy in Christ? What is it that tempts you away from him? And, and, and again, this is going to look a little bit different for each one of us, and it's going to look different as your life progresses. And here's the tough thing about this category. If I just say, well, what robs you of your joy? Most of those things for us are probably not going to be external. They're going to be internal. And most of them, especially the older we get, the better we get at hiding some of them, are going to be difficult for others to notice and point out. So unless you just have this clear major area of sin that's is obvious to others, much of what robs you of joy is going to rattle around just inside of you and it's going to torment you and nobody else is ever going to know. So just think about these things. If you're a jealous person and you envy others, other people may not even know that. But really what you've given into is believing that you deserve something that God has not given you. When you are jealous, you're angry with God. He hasn't given me something. You're looking around just thinking everybody else has been more blessed by God than I have. Uh, What about bitterness? You can be really bitter and hide that from other people really well. But again, what you're doing is blaming God for something that happened in the past and just refusing to move on from it. Anger. It is really tough to be a joyful person and angry at the same time. And on the flip side, 
if you can let go of anger, because here's the thing, when you're angry, anger consumes a big part of your day. Anger consumes a lot of your time. Anger takes up a lot of your emotion. If you can trust Christ and let go of whatever it is that you're angry about, there's usually a lot of room for joy. There's usually a lot of time and space for you to be joyful. Joyful, Joy can flood in when you let go of your anger. But you have to do it first. And when we're angry, usually we're angry because what we're saying is we really want to be in control. We're usually angry at circumstances. Somebody hasn't done something. Something has befallen us. And really what we're angry about is that I haven't been allowed to decide what I want to decide. So we're angry at God. We're angry at other people. But usually it's because we don't have control. So our lives are different. The world's different than we want it to be, and we're mad about it. Uh, Last one. Anger and then this last one, judgmentalism, are really close related. That's why it's so tough to be joyful if you are constantly judging other people. I would almost say it like this. You can either be joyful or judgmental. You're going to find it really, really difficult, if not impossible, to do both. And so if you just think, I've got life figured out, and why am I always suffering fools around me? I've got this figured out, and if everybody else could just know what I know and do what I do and be like me, we'd all be better for it. If you walk around like that, you're not going to be joyful. You're going to be a judgmental, angry person. It won't, judgmentalism doesn't bring you the superiority you think it will. It makes your life miserable. So I'm just going to leave this like this. For Paul, Christ was everything. For us, Christ can be all. And you're not going to know true joy until he is. You won't know true joy until you get the gospel. And then once you do, look at those things. What inspires in you passion for Christ? What is it that brings you joy? What are the things just in your life that you love and how can you turn them to worship of Christ? And then again, last question very simply, what robs you of it? What holds you back from joy in Christ? Paul had so many things that he thought were going for him and what he learned by the end of his life were all of those things were the things that were holding me back and turning me or robbing me from joy in Christ. I thought, he says, that's what was bringing me joy, but instead it was taking it away from me. Let's pray. God, may we be a joyful people. One who considers Christ to be everything. And I just, I do want to thank you for those things that you give us that bring us joy. And for those things that would distract us, whether the big things or whether, whether very subtly, we, we, may we know them and identify them and put them to death, putting them away from us. And may you use the space, take that space that was once reserved for anger and bitterness and judgment and jealousy and all of those things. And may you fill it with a profound happiness in you. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.